Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. This week, you're going to hear my entire conversation, about 28, 29 minutes worth, with Patrick Mahomes, the Super Bowl MVP. I wrote about him in my column this week, uh, a week after the Super Bowl, and I recorded our conversation to play on this podcast, and you will hear that coming up. Um, A couple of observations on Mahomes. I think as you will hear and as you've seen with him so far, he's 24 years old. He's very careful, and his uh, he's not going to be a, a real colorful interview or anything like that. He's going to answer the questions as best he can without being uh, you know, very controversial. But I think you'll learn a lot about his approach to this game and about how he was able to come back in the second half after, uh, basically in the fourth quarter, after really having a lot of shaky moments in his first 50 minutes. Uh, so you'll learn that, and I'll, I'll, also, uh, I'll also just say that in advance of you listening to this, I think you will enjoy how, to me, Patrick Mahomes was raised because I think he had a dad who was very, very uh, in tune with making sure that everything about his upbringing, if he was ever going to play sports, he was going to understand what it took and what kind of person and competitor you need to be to really succeed in professional sports. So you'll hear about that. You'll hear some stories about the Sioux Falls Canaries and and about Alex Rodriguez and things like that. So uh, I hope you enjoy that conversation. And we'll get to that in a minute. But first, you know, I wanted to talk just for a few minutes about the XFL and what happened in the first weekend of the XFL. A little bit of history first. I was at the first game ever in XFL history 19 years ago. Obviously, this is the second iteration of the XFL. The first one, which opened to much pomp and circumstance at Sam Boyd Stadium in Las Vegas in 2001. I was there covering the game for Sports Illustrated along with Lee Montville, the legendary uh, writer from Boston. And 
what I what I remember about that game, and I'm going to tell you just a little bit about that, just so that you understand and have a little bit of perspective about what we saw this past weekend. Uh, first of all, at that game at a college stadium in Las Vegas, there was 30,000 people who came. It was a late-arriving crowd. A lot of people just got excited at the last few minutes or the last few days leading up to the game. And the the, the line of cars leading to Sam Boyd Stadium uh, just before kickoff reminded me of the line of cars in Field of Dreams. Remember that? You know, where if you build it, they will come. And the line of cars leading to that field in Dyersville, Iowa, uh, toward the end of that movie. That's what it was like that night in Vegas. You know, Vince McMahon, the wrestling impresario, and NBC's Dick Ebersol were there uh, because this was going to be a combo platter between the XFL and NBC. And that's really what this was, too. This was a this is a made for uh, made for TV football league. And that first weekend was really pretty amazing. The XFL uh, had a crowd of 30,000 in Vegas. They had 35,000 in Birmingham, Alabama. They had 38,000 at then Pac Bell Park in San Francisco to see San Francisco and Los Angeles play. A sellout in San Francisco, an NFL city. And I, I said, wow, this, is, this really has got a chance. The ratings were phenomenal. They did a 10.3 rating, a 17 share in the United States on the first night uh, of the XFL. And what's so amazing about that, I think, is that, think about it, that basically is the rating of a good regional uh, game in the NFL today. Uh, so they, they had a lot of eyes on that first game. And so let's fast forward to today. And, you know, they had four games in this new iteration of the XFL. They all drew in the 17,000 range. None of them drew as many as 20,000. Um, some of the stadiums, you know, it's, I think it's ridiculous for the New York franchise to be playing at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. It just looked like, you know, they didn't sell any tickets in the upper deck. And in the lower bowl, it almost looked like just confetti being thrown. It, 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 just, it just didn't look good. They'd be much better off playing their games at the Red Bulls Stadium in Harrison, New Jersey, or, or at a, you know, or at a, uh, say at Rutgers or something like that, because it just looks awful when you play a game at a giant stadium. Um, no pun intended here, but this is obviously where the New York Giants play. So um, the crowds were modest, but I thought the crowd at the Washington game, they played at Audi Stadium, where the Washington uh, MLS team plays, the soccer team. And it looked great. It looked enthusiastic. It was 85% full. Uh, it was a big, excited crowd. And, I mean, it looked like a, a, a cool atmosphere for a game. Um, but I just think that one of the things that really kind of hurts the TV product is when you're playing in a giant, huge stadium – and it looks like there's nobody there. Um, 
that was my first observation. I think the second observation is that, you know, you have to be realistic. I actually think it's good that this iteration of the, of the XFL didn't have the TV crowds that they had 19 years ago. Uh, the, the ESPN uh, rating of this game basically was that the crowd watching the first game this weekend uh, basically peaked at 4 million uh, and averaged about 3.3 million. That's a nice crowd, a very nice uh, TV crowd to, uh, to have. And I also think that sort of the enthusiasm for the league on social media is good. Social media really didn't exist in 2001, obviously, so there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram to share all this stuff. Uh, and also, they, they have a benefit of being able to talk about and promote gambling right now where they used to not be able to do that. But, this is a very big but, I tell you this little history lesson for a very simple reason. In 2001, the XFL lasted one year. And although they were convinced at the start of it that they were going to give it a real shot, a three-year trial, uh, and you know, they had a major network, NBC, and, and Vince McMahon with very deep pockets, and you hear everything right now about the XFL saying, we're in this for three years. We're going to give this a real legitimate shot. And I don't doubt that that's what they believe right now. And for all of those people who love football, for all those players who want to give uh, football another chance in their lives, great. I think it's fantastic. The only thing I would say is they're going to have to battle against what everybody battles when they try to start a spring football league. And the only one that had a remote amount of success uh, was the USFL, which died 35 years ago. So I think before everybody gets way too excited about this, just realize that the only way that this league will work, the only way, is if Vince McMahon, Oliver Luck, and those who are at the head of this project, if they mentally say to themselves, we are in this and will be willing to lose two or three hundred million dollars because the only way that you're going to have a chance is with staying power is with telling people, hey, listen, we're going to show up here next weekend. If we have a crowd of 6,000 one week, we don't care. We will be back next weekend. You're not going to get rid of us. That's the only way. Because these leagues fail when you start to get into the dog days of the first year. It's why the AAF failed. You get into the dog days, and, it, and, you, and the money is, it's a money pit. You're throwing money away. The only way the XFL will work is if they are willing, in essence, to be a loss leader for a good, solid two to three years and not even think of getting rid of the product until you've played two to three years and understand that 
staying power is what makes a good league. So let's go on to our conversation with Patrick Mahomes. I recorded it while he was on his way home from the gym last uh, Friday, uh, which was five days after the Super Bowl. And you'll hear Patrick Mahomes right here. Here with Patrick Mahomes and Patrick, it's we're, as we record this on Friday morning, uh, four or five days after the Super Bowl. How's your life changed? What's your life been like this week? Yeah, I mean it's been pretty insane. Uh, honestly, it's just been amazing. Uh, first, being able to, to win the Super Bowl, of course, and then and then going to Disney World and enjoying that, uh, and then getting back to Kansas City and, and being part of the parade and. And everything that that, that encompasses uh, with uh, with all my teammates. I mean, it was an awesome experience, and uh, I'm glad I got to do it here in Kansas City and got to enjoy it with all my guys. I thought one of the coolest things was, I mean, you're very, very composed. You know, nothing ever seems to get to you. You're very composed, but, you know, you're 24 years old. And I thought the coolest thing about the parade and the whole thing was, you grab this can of beer out of thin air. It just appeared like a fastball. You grabbed it. You shotgunned it. And it was just, I mean, its I think it's what I would have done when I was 24 and I won the Super Bowl. Yeah, no, it, it was it was fun to kind of let loose for a day and, and just be one of the guys. I mean, I think that was the biggest thing is uh, being with all my guys in that atmosphere in Kansas City, you could just tell that we were all having fun and enjoying it. And, I mean, you only get those opportunities uh, a few times in a lifetime to be a part of something like that. And so, for me, it was all about enjoying it and uh, enjoying the day with everybody. So, let's go over a couple of things in this game. Um, late in the third quarter, you get the ball back. San Francisco has just scored to go up 20-10. to 10. And... On the next series, that's the series that ended with uh, your interception that you threw slightly behind Tyreek Hill. On that series, six of the nine times you went back to pass or you scrambled after intending to pass, you got pressured, sacked, hit something on six of those nine times. And this defense really made life hard for you. And I wondered, what was the key to you to not get frustrated? Yeah, I, mean, I think it was just staying with the process. I think that's the biggest thing that I try to do uh, all year long was when stuff wasn't going exactly uh, how, how I wanted it. We weren't having the exact same amount of success as an offense that we had the previous year. I, I just knew that if we stay with the process, that we could find a way to win games. And I think that adversity that we, we, we had about the middle part of the year of, of losing some games that we thought we should have won and dealing with injuries really prepared us to play in every single type of, of ball game. And, uh, it showed up in the, the last game. We, we didn't play the first three and a half quarters like we like we wanted to as an offense, but we still found a way to score enough in the end. Do you remember the play where you ended up diving for a first down? And when you dove for the first down, just before that, Bosa, who chased you the whole game, Bosa dove at you and slapped at your left leg and I thought for sure that you were going to go down, but you stayed up. Do you remember that? How did you stay up? Yeah, no, I, I do. And I, it, was, it was a play where they had gotten a, kind of a rush inside, I believe, on the right side with either Armstead or Buckner, and it flushed me out to the right. And I was running, and I actually didn't even feel Bosa behind me until right when he dove. And when he dove, I think that last second of me seeing him kind of diving in my leg, I was able to get my knees up. 
and that, and that was a big thing uh, when, when you're running away from a guy to hit your legs is to keep your your, your knees up and get, keeping your feet from dragging on the uh, the ground. And so he hit me hard. It hit me hard. My left little bruise actually, and then uh, but I was able to still get around the, the side and get a first down uh, on that play. And and like you said, I mean that dude is that dude is a monster. He's going to be a very special <laughs> football player, a very special football player for a long time. And so uh, he had a, he played a great game. But I thought our offensive line did a good, a good enough job to give me enough time in the end. Um. On the play where you threw the the interception to uh, uh, the pass intended for Tyreek Hill, your second interception, 12 minutes left in the game, and it looked like when there was about seven seconds left on the play clock, you changed the play at the line. You had both your head, you know, both hands to your helmet. Did you change the play? And and do you regret changing the play now based on the outcome? No, I, I don't. I don't regret it. Uh, I, I changed. I did change the play. Uh, I saw they were in a man coverage, and so I changed it to a, one of our man beaters that we run a lot, um, a lot throughout the season. And, and the thing that where the mistake I made was I stayed on the the, the first read just a little too long. With I think it was uh, McCole Hartman and Maris. I can't believe it was McCole or Sammy. But one of those guys was was going on the shallow cross route, and I wanted. I was thinking to hit him first, and I stayed on it too long. And by the time I got to Tyreek. Uh, the safety was coming down on him, and so I try to, I try to like almost try to slow him down with the football instead of just throwing that there and letting him catch it and take the hit. And I think that was just a thing where I stayed on the first reach just a little bit too long. And if I would have, I think if I'd have hit Tyreek right out of his break on his slant route, uh, he would have had a chance to maybe split the guys and even even get in the end zone. And so for me, it was it wasn't necessarily wrong with changing the play. I put us into the right play. I just didn't make my my decision quick enough. So there there now you come to the sidelines. 49ers are getting the got the ball back. There's 12 minutes left in the game. You've thrown these two picks, and I wonder. Tell me exactly what happened when you went to the sidelines after that. What do you remember about either with Eric Bieniemy, Mike Kafka, Andy Reid, any of your teammates? What do you remember about that moment, which had to have been a real low? Yeah, no, I think the biggest thing was that almost every single person uh, that that came up to you right there said, hey, we still got time left. You're still good. Like, we, we're still going to have time to go down there and put up points. And it, and it almost got to a point where it was almost it was almost a little annoying because I, I knew we had time left, but every single body was feeding me, feeding me confidence, feeding me positivity. And uh, we joked around about it after the game. Uh, there was one point, uh, Matt Moore, who's my back, uh, backup quarterback, a guy that, that was uh, vital in us being where we were at this season, he came up to me, and he was like the last guy to come up to me and say something. And he, he said, hey, hey, we still got a lot of time left. you got to believe. And I, and I almost gave him a little bit of an attitude. I was like, hey, I, still, I know we got time left. <laughs> and we, after, after the game, we joked around about it. He's like, man, you kind of came hot, at, you came hot with, that, with that reply. And I was like, I, I was just – everybody had told me, and I was ready to get back out there. And I think just the guys having confidence in me, uh, the positivity that we have on this team, it, it gave me the confidence to still go out there and keep slinging the football around. Seven minutes and 17 seconds left. Second and 15 at your own 35. Uh, there's a pass to Tyreek Hill that you underthrow. And that Tyreek catches, it appears. But then they Kyle Shanahan throws the challenge flag. So at that moment, I just watched the replay this week. Troy Aikman said, hey, he's not played well. That should have been his easiest completion of the night. And then you go to the sidelines and sort of set the stage for um, for the big play after that. But what do you remember about that play when you wonder through Tyreek? 
yeah, it was a play where I, I think I was just I was feeling the the, the pressure in the pocket. Uh, it was a play that was kind of a longer play. Yeah. Tyreek was running almost like a double move with a stop on on the back end of the route, and it's a play we've ran a lot this season, and had a lot of success, and I I had time as I went back and watched the film. Uh, but during the game, I, I was just feeling it, and I was like, man, I, I need to get the ball out of my hands. This is a long, developing route. And I I, I, uh, I just tried to guess where Tyreek was going to stop at instead of letting him finish the route and then throwing the ball. And so uh, it was a play that I had enough time. I underthrew him. I, 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 from my angle, I could see that he didn't catch the ball. That's why I tried to get everybody up there to snap snap it uh, the next play. But it, it was a play that we, I should have completed and that play that we've completed a lot this season. What was really interesting when you went to the sidelines, NFL Films had it, is that you went right to be enemy, and he said, you know, do we have time to run Wasp? And after the game, Andy Reid basically diagrammed the play, and he explained everything about Wasp, which you did, too, after the game, just without the name of it. But I found what was really interesting is that you're 24 years old. You're playing the biggest game of your life, and you're down by 10 with seven minutes to go, and you're really not playing particularly well. And what causes you at that moment to just have the presence to forget about all that and go to the next play? Yeah, I think it's just the competitiveness and the, the, the way I've been kind of raised my whole entire life. Uh, I don't know if it's from baseball. I don't know if it's from basketball or from my, my time in football. But I've always just been taught uh, that you just have to play the next play. You have to go out there and compete no matter what's happened earlier in the game no matter what's happened in uh, the whole season it, all that matters is that next play and so for me it was uh, after that pass I, I just wanted to be in the best have the best play called uh we had talked about that play kind of throughout the game uh about we wanted to get this play called uh we thought it was a good versus the the defense that they were playing and uh we i, I just kind of asked i asked uh, uh ev i was like uh, do you think we have enough time to uh, in the pocket to run this play this long developing play and he asked me if I wanted it on either first uh, first down. I went down a distance, and I just told him, I don't care if we get the first down here or not. I want to run this play. Um, and uh, uh, and we, we ran it. Uh, the offensive line gave me enough time. I mean, Tyreek ran like a 25-yard uh, post-corner type route. And, uh, and, and we had enough time for me to get the ball out there and him to make a, a great play on the football. Uh, look, just from the outside, I think what is so interesting about that and – and the reason that I would probably want to play for Andy Reid just like you do is that, you know, that play right there is the biggest play of your season. You know, if you don't complete, if you don't convert this third down, you know, maybe you punt, maybe you go for it, who knows. But fourth and 15, as coaches say, there aren't many plays in the, in the playbook that are good on fourth and fifteen. So did you realize at that time, you know, especially after Andy called it, maybe it doesn't hit you, but it hit me after I learned everything about this play. They let Patrick Mahomes suggest this play, the biggest play of the year, and then Andy called it. Yeah, and, I, and almost with, with that little bit of a break that we had when they were reviewing the cats, we were able to talk through all scenarios. And I had already talked with Coach Reed and Coach Kafkin and AB, and, and they had told me, hey, if, if, we get, if we get half of this right now, we're going for it. And so for me, it was one of those plays where we had a lot of people running deep, but, but at the same time with the chips, we had little chip routes that, that could give us get us probably half the distance. So for me, it was, hey, if, we don't, if I don't have Tyreek or Sammy on these, on these two routes, uh, let's get it straight to that check down and get give ourselves a chance at fourth down. And I think having that little bit of time and being able to just discuss with the coaches 
what our, our plan was. Uh, it gave us a good game plan to go out there and, and execute at a high level on, a, on a, a crucial down in the game. Were you pretty sure when Tyreek is going to turn to make it a, a post corner instead of just a pure post, are you pretty sure that the corner is going to sit with uh, with Sammy Watkins there? Uh, like, yeah, no. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, whenever they uh, – whenever, whenever I saw – because, I mean, uh, Sammy ran a 20-yard like 20 in, in-cut type right. route. So, I mean, every every action for the corner right there is to stay on that route. I mean, if he doesn't stay there, I'll throw that for the first down, and, and we would have been able to move that way. And so, for for him, once I saw Tyree get one-on-one with the safety, I mean, that that's that's a matchup that I'm going to take every – every time and so uh it was all about for me it was all about having protection on that play uh letting Tyreek get out down there in the field and everybody else doing their jobs occupy other players and then and then Tyreek making a a huge play you know there's got to be such tremendous trust with him because really you threw that ball about 56 yards in the air and you didn't throw it with great form you you really just winged it because DeForest Buckner was about to just crush you and and I wonder I mean, are you just saying I'm going to throw it exactly where I think Tyreek is going to be? Yeah, and I wanted to throw it where he was able to catch it. I think that was the biggest thing to me. Uh, obviously, I want to throw it, score a touchdown, and do all the different stuff. But with him just now getting into his break, I was going to put it out there uh, towards the sideline where he can make a play on it. And I think an underrated part of, of his game is obviously he's fast and he's gotten great at running routes. But the way he's able to track track the ball in the air and still running full speed is, is really impressive. And uh I always, I always say, me and Coach Reed say that we think he could be one of the best center fielders uh, uh, as far as tracking the ball and running it down. And so I just put it out there where I knew he would be able to track it and run it down and make a good play on it. Um, one other thing just about the end of the game. Um, were you pretty sure, you know, after you scored that first touchdown, were you pretty sure, you know, you're going to get the ball back at least one more time? What did that do for you and for your team? I noticed on the replay, you didn't you didn't spend any time really celebrating that touchdown. You came to the sideline and you were sort of intent on the next series right away. Yeah, yeah, you have to be, and I, I mean, I knew that touchdown was big, and that got us got us back in the ball game. Um, but I mean, we weren't done. I think that was the biggest thing that I was I was trying to preach to those guys is. First, I wanted to talk to the defense and, and wanted to let them know that this game's not over. We just need uh, a, a couple stops and, and, and that, uh, that we, we would go out there and win it. Um, and then and then I wanted to talk to the offense and let them know the same thing. And uh, like, yeah, we score, but with that much time left, you never know uh, if you're going if you're going to be able to get another chance to go down the, go down there and win the game. But the defense made a great stop on a really good offense and gave us a chance, and we we, we maximized it. You've told me in the past that a big part of your mental uh, preparedness and your sort of mental toughness and not giving up um, has to do with being around your dad a lot uh, when he was in baseball clubhouses. And for those who don't know, you, you your dad played 11 years in the big leagues uh, for six different teams. Uh, and he was this sort of journeyman pitcher who was a real tough guy and didn't have the Nolan Ryan fastball, but he he was tough and he could get guys out. And I wonder, what are you, what is a memory or two that you might have of being in clubhouses when you were small, and why do you think that that helped you today? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me, uh, the, the, the main memory I always have is when I, whenever I watched uh, guys that my dad played with, like Alex Rodriguez and uh, guys like Derek Jeter and all these guys that, are, that were superstars, I mean, uh, the best of the best uh, at the time uh, in the game and, and how much success they had. And then I watched how hard they worked. Uh, and I got to see it day, day, every day how they were the first people there and they were hitting off the tee like I was doing as a little kid and trying to perfect their game. And, and then that really was instilled in me and told me that if I wanted to be great, I had to put the work in. And even when you're, you're at the top of the game, you have to still keep working in order to stay at the top. And I think those memories were stuff that uh, that, that really stuck with me and knowing I have to go out there every single day and put the work in if I want to go out there and keep having success. There's kind of a legendary story. I don't know if it's true or not, but you, you'll tell me. Did did Alex Rodriguez help you in batting practice? Yeah, no, he, he for sure did. Like we, I would go down there, and I, like I said, I'd watch him hit off the tee, and then he would let me hit and give me tips and, t- and let me do stuff. And that same as uh, he'd take ground balls at shortstop uh, when my dad was on the Rangers, and I would take ground balls after him, and he'd just give me tips and stuff like that. And so it, it, it was crazy thinking about it now, but back then I thought I was a baseball player and I thought that was my route. You know, it's funny. You were only, what, five or six years old then. I mean, yes, did, it yeah. seem, did it seem a little strange that the most famous player in baseball is spending time with you uh, trying to help your game? No, at the time it didn't. I mean, when you're that young, uh, like you said, I was six, six years old, probably maybe seven and I, I was I was just out there just just being a kid and having fun and that's all I known growing up. And uh, now I think about it, I have a little sister who's eight years old now, and I, I have zero idea how they allowed me to be on the on the field catching fly balls when I was seven or whatever it was, <laughs> uh, while the major league guys were hitting hitting line drives everywhere. <laughs> so, um, and and was there anything else? Do you have any other vivid memories? Your dad the next year. Uh, was with the Cubs, and then the year after that, I think, ended his career with the Pirates. But right in there, those years, like the last four years, the Mets, the the Rangers, the Cubs, and the Pirates, does anything really stick out to you as a vivid memory from those days? Yeah, to me, it was the grind. It was the grind because when, when I really sort of have all my memories is when my dad was bouncing back from AAA uh, to the big leagues, and then and then at the end of his career, where he went to independent baseball and played it for the Sioux Falls Canaries, and I got to see how these guys grind every single day, taking eight to twelve hour bus trips uh, to different places to play baseball games, and I got to see the, that 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 grind of a, of a baseball player, of a professional athlete, and that was that was big for me, and it really gave me uh, a great mindset of knowing how much hard work you need to put in in order to in order to live out your dream. Did you ever take a bus trip with the Canaries? Oh uh, yeah, I actually at one point I, I I think I got on the bus with them in Dallas Dallas Texas. I, I can't remember who they were playing before that, and then I took a bus trip all the way to to El Paso to play the El Paso Independent Baseball Team, and so that was a long one. And they were playing cards on the bus and doing all that different type of stuff. And and I I did for sure get to do a lot of a lot of bus trips when I was young when I was young. It was very interesting after the game. Fox showed an embrace between you and your dad and your dad seemed very emotional in that embrace what do you think that meant to him and you yeah i think just i think for uh at least i think for him i mean i think he was just soaking it all in i mean i mean it's it still it was surreal 
I mean, I was still pumping off the adrenaline from the game, but just to be there and to be champs and for him to see me living out my dream, I know that was that was big for him. And uh, I mean, he was just enjoying it. I mean, there wasn't even words that needed to be said. It was all about just enjoying the moment of, of being on top and and knowing that all the work that that, that has been put in it was worth it, and that that we're world champs. More with Patrick Mahomes after this. Zoom didn't invent video conferencing. They just made it better. Now Zoom is how business gets done. Zoom ties together all of your communication needs into one easy app for video conferencing, phone calls, group chat, webinars, and your conference rooms. Turn any workspace into a modern, easy-to-use Zoom room. An enterprise-grade video conference room designed for instant collaboration. You'll get flawless video and audio, instant wireless content sharing, and a single tap of a button to start a meeting. And Zoom Phone works seamlessly from any device as your business phone system to make and receive phone calls, capture call recordings, and easily elevate from phone call to video if the need arises. I mean, if you run meetings and you've got a lot of people around the country, how in the world are you not using Zoom? I mean, it has everything that you could want to run a competent and very successful meeting. Zoom is used by millions to connect around the world. So why wait any longer? Visit Zoom online and set up your free account today and meet happy with Zoom. And now my conversation with Jay Glazer of Fox Sports about a lot of different things. And now the rest of my conversation with Patrick Mahomes. So I got three more quick things to ask you about. One is, you know, basically you you now have won the MVP of the league at age 23. You've won the Super Bowl MVP at age 24. And so obviously everything is going great, but I keep thinking back to when you were drafted and what a great situation it was for you. And I wonder, when you were about to be drafted, there were three teams that it really came down to the wire on. One was Kansas City, one was New Orleans, where it would have been with Sean Payton, and one was Arizona, where you know your coach would have been Bruce Arians. You know, a lot of guys, a lot of really good quarterbacks in the draft go to a team that's 2-14 and 14 and maybe doesn't have a lot of hope. But it almost seems before you were drafted, somehow, someway, everything worked out so that, I mean, look, you, you went to the perfect place, obviously. But I wonder, what, you, what were you thinking before the draft that year and about your possibilities? Yeah, no, I, um, I uh, definitely... I got I went to the right the right place. I mean, like you said, uh, in Kansas City, uh, I actually had I had no idea until after the draft that New Orleans really w- was interested in drafting me. Um, but I, I knew Arizona Arizona was a place that that uh, that wanted to draft me and a place that uh, had a great coach there, Coach Arians, and with a great football team. And so for me, um, the, I knew I wanted to be in Kansas City. Kansas City was the team I definitely showed the most interest. Uh, I knew that uh, I wanted to be with Coach Reed. I know you could get the best out of me every single day, but I, I knew that you never know what happens on draft night. And so for me, I was just trying to enjoy the moment, enjoy the time I had with my family, 
um, uh, just enjoying the draft as it went by. Obviously, uh, I, it worked out perfectly with Kansas City trading up to number 10 and getting me and, and trusting in me to, to, to go out there and show them that that pick was the right decision. And uh, it was a long draft process where I started off as a third-round grade. I was given by the, like, the advisory board and ended up getting drafted 10th overall. You know, I will always think also, as fortunate as you were to get drafted in Kansas City and have Andy Reid there, I can't imagine going to a better situation than playing with Alex Smith for a year. And and, uh, Andy had told me after the championship game that, that Alex Smith had texted him after the game and he said the kid played phenomenal. You know, it's amazing. Think about it. You know, you basically... And you you chased Alex Smith out of town, and he's still a fan of yours. It's it's a very very interesting scenario where a guy kind of helped you take his job. Yeah, and I don't even know if you you would even have to uh, phrase it like that. I think for me and for him, it was that we had so much respect for each other. I mean, I I, I saw him work his work ethic day in and day out, and it, and it wasn't him trying to help me take his job or do anything like that but it was just him being who he was and he had one of the best seasons that that's been had by a quarterback in a long time I think he led the NFL in passer rating uh led the team to the playoffs and did a lot of great things and and for for him he was just being who he was and I was learning from him just by him doing that and uh he's a he's a great human being I still use a lot of the same tips and same blueprint on, on how I schedule my week based off what he did and, and what he does, and it, and it really has helped me build a blueprint for myself. And, uh, I mean, he was someone that was truly impactful in my career and who really sped up the process of, of having success in this league. And it's something that not a lot of quarterbacks have, and you see that's why a lot of quarterbacks struggle when they get there as a veteran guy who's willing to, to give them tips on how to have success early in their career. There's a quarterback whose personality reminds me a lot of you, and it's, and it's Russell Wilson. And I remember covering the NFC Championship game five, six years ago. They played the Green Bay Packers. He threw four interceptions early. And he was having the worst game of his life. And he never, he, you'd see him on the sidelines and he was up hitting guys on the shoulder pads and whatever he's saying. But it really reminded me uh, of what I would really want in a quarterback, which is no matter what the situation is, you know, you really can't get down. That's not going to help you in any way. I wonder, do you have you gotten to know Russell Wilson at all? Have you ever talked to him about his approach to the game and and the attitude that he has that is like that? Yeah, I, I haven't talked to him exactly about the approach, but I've gotten to know him a little bit through just passing and being at the Pro Bowl last year. And then, uh, and then, uh, just just seeing him here and there, and I understand that he has that mindset. And you watch him, and all his, all his, because he's always staying positive. He's always got the mindset of he's going to find a way to to have success and to win. Um, And I think, I mean, you you might be able to attribute it some to baseball. I mean, when you play baseball, you you hit three out of ten ten at bats, you're you're having a great great year. And I think just knowing in baseball, you're going to fail more than you're going to than you're going to you're going to have success. I think it has that mindset of. Every single at bat, every single opportunity you get to uh, have a pass attempt is a uh, is a chance to have success, and you have to just keep moving on after each one. If you had stayed in baseball, where would you be right now? Uh, I mean, hopefully, I'd have made it to the, the big leagues by now. Uh, I have a, I have one of my my friends. I've grown up. I grew up playing with a Michael Kopech who plays in the White Sox right now, and he's one of the 
top guys. He had, he had surgery last year, so he didn't get to play this last season, but he's one of the top guys for the White Sox pitching, and we went, we went back and forth my whole life uh, competing against each other, and so hopefully I could have stayed on some similar type of pace. I mean, he throws 100. I don't know if I could have thrown that hard. Uh, but uh, but hopefully I'd have been on the similar pace that he was. He's in the big leagues now, so hopefully I could have made it. Would you have pitched or played shortstop? I would have tried my, my hardest to play shortstop, but I I think they would have ended up moving me to pitcher at some point. I mean, I, they uh, they always told me that they wanted me to play outfield uh, third or third base, and if it didn't work out, uh, we'll move you to pitcher. Uh, so I I would have tried, to, but uh, if I had to move the pitcher, I would have done whatever it took to get there. Um. Last thing I would ask you, how do you think your life is going to change now? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, obviously it's, it's going to change a little bit as far as people knowing me in certain in certain places that they didn't know last year and the year before that. Uh, but for me, uh, everything else will be the same. I'm still going to hang out with the same people I've hung out with my whole life. I still have a lot of the same best friends I've had since high school. I uh, hang out with my teammates. I'll be I'll be the same places as far as back home in Texas and then back in Kansas City. And uh, I'll try to enjoy it like I always do and be the same person that I've been my, my whole entire life. Hey, by the way, is that story true? When you walked out of a restaurant in Kansas City recently with your girlfriend, you thanked everybody no, it, for it, leaving no, you alone? It's, it's, not, it's not true. I, I didn't know where that came from, but that, that one's not true for sure. <laughs> hey, well, listen, have a great off season. I really appreciate you taking the time, huh? Yeah, thank you. My thanks to Super Bowl MVP Patrick Mahomes for for his time. My thanks to uh, uh, his dad, too. If you read my column this week, uh, his dad was very, very good talking about Patrick and talking about his sporting upbringing. I think you'll enjoy his stories. Um, now, I'm going to get out of here, but I, I do want to uh, explain a couple of people who uh, have – emailed me and written me um, at peterkingfmia at gmail.com have have asked me about sort of the off-season plans. And so here's basically the plan through the off-season. I'll do this column basically every week until May. I'll take seven weeks off. Uh, We will have... uh, guest columnists in that time and then I'll be back for training camp that's the way I've done it for I think 19 years now I've been writing the column year-round and then while I'm on vacation I get guest columnists to uh, uh, to write it so that's the plan here Uh, you'll be hearing the podcast also uh, through much of the offseason and then obviously we'll be back hitting the ground running when the NFL goes back to training camp in late July. But anyway, thanks so much for listening to the podcast this week. Uh, I'll have two new guests next week on the podcast, and we'll start looking toward the NFL Scouting Combine, which uh, will happen the last week of this month in Indianapolis. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone.
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. 